Well, welcome to everyone joining us online at Get Hope TV. Thank you for joining us this weekend, and thank you for joining us live. I'm so excited. I, uh, we are recording this a few days prior um, to the weekend, but I missed last weekend. I was at the beach, and uh, I missed this so much. There's something special about joining together, isn't there? Uh, text message is cool. Phone message is cool. Zoom is cool. But there's something about gathering in a room and singing songs and worshiping God and opening the Bible together that is special. So thank you so much for joining us. We are in the last week of our series that we've been calling Obstacle Course. And what we've been learning is that God will intentionally bring us face to face with some obstacles or some trials, some temptations, so that he can grow us and change us into the type of people that he's created us to be, the type of people that he can use to expand his kingdom. And we've seen over the past few weeks that God wants to instill in his followers a few characteristics. The first week we talked about dependence. He wants his followers to be okay in their own weaknesses, to actually rejoice in their weaknesses and depend on his strength. Uh, Last week, Donnie did an amazing job talking about the characteristic of devotion, where we devote ourselves to God and nothing else. And we've seen just how powerful those can be in our lives. And so this week, we're going to be looking at the very last temptation that Jesus faces and the last characteristic that we see in these verses that God wants to uh, form in the hearts of his followers. And that is the characteristic of trust. God wants followers that trust that his commands are good that trust the way of life that he's called us to follow, and that also trust his goodness and and his presence in any and all circumstances. And in my opinion, this characteristic of trust is perhaps one of the hardest for us to develop. I think uh, by our very nature as human beings, we are pretty untrusting people, right? I don't think that gullible is a compliment in our culture. Um, Not not, not when we're little. I remember we're we're very, very trusting. Uh, When my girls were very, very small, I'd be walking down the hallway and I'd see this streak streak of pink in my my side view vision and look and there was Reese in her pink pajamas jumping off the couch or jumping off the counter or jumping off the stairs just knowing that I would catch her. And so my dad instincts would catch in and I would catch her. Uh, Most of the time there was one time I didn't. We don't speak of that one time. But um, as we get older, we're confronted with stuff like scams and pyramid schemes. And we learn that people actually lie. And we slowly grow to distrust certain people and certain things. Like, have you ever gotten a call from an unknown number and the person on the other end says, congratulations, you're our number one runner for a million dollars. What do you do to that phone call? You hang up, right? You ever get a card in the mail telling you, you just won a brand new car. What do you do with that card? You throw it in the trash, just like it's junk mail. You ever gotten an email from the Prince of Nigeria? Anyone? I thought that was legit. It's not. So you need to delete that email, right? As we get older, we lose that childhood trust in other people, and we grow this kind of healthy sense of suspicion or doubt or skepticism. We get pretty good at sizing people up. And if we're not careful, that lack of trust will carry over into our walk with God. We'll treat him like just another person that we have to size up, that we have to doubt and see if we can trust them. And it might start off small at first, doubting this command or that command, if it's good for our lives, doubting that God actually knows what's best in this area of our life. But slowly over time, we can stop trusting God altogether and move from trusting into this area that the Bible calls testing, of testing God. 
And we're going to learn what testing God means today. Um, But it's a dangerous place to be. So this week, uh, we're going to see Jesus be tempted by Satan to test God. And instead of responding how we commonly do, he shows complete trust in God. And my prayer is that at the end of this sermon, not only will we all be a little bit more hesitant to test God, but also that we'll be reminded again of exactly why we can trust him that we'll be reminded of the fact that he's earned the right for us to trust him. And that can be so powerful. Uh, You show me a man or a woman that trusts God with every area of their life, and I'll show you a person that can change the world. So uh, we're going to be in the very last temptation, the third temptation. It's in Luke chapter 4. This temptation is a little bit more complicated, a little bit more nuanced than the other two. So we got our work cut out for us. But go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 4. We're going to pick it up right after that second temptation, and we'll start in verse 9 where it says this. The devil led him, that's Jesus, to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Now, this is another odd sort of temptation. All three have been really weird, right? Turning stones into bread, bowing down to worship Satan. Uh, and now this, I don't know about you, but I've, I, don't, I don't feel tempted to jump off a building so the angels will catch me. So again, at first glance, this might seem weird, but as we get into it, you'll see how applicable it is. Uh, during this temptation, um, Satan knows that God has, has promised Jesus a kingdom. And so he is offering Jesus a shortcut a path to bring God's kingdom to earth without having to go through the agonies of the cross. And so as Jesus is standing on the highest wall of the temple, at that moment, there are thousands of people worshiping at the temple below him. So all of Israel's movers and shakers would have been there. These are the top religious leaders, the important people. And these are the leaders who will, in just a few months' time when Jesus starts his ministry, beg Jesus for a sign that he was a Messiah. They say it all the time, give us a sign and we'll follow you. So can you imagine the spectacle that he would have caused by leaping off the roof and having angels catch him up? I mean, these people were literally waiting for a Messiah. So if Jesus were to do this, he would have amassed a huge following immediately. And so Satan is offering Jesus a choice, a choice to obey God and go through with the cross and the suffering or skip that pain and that suffering and just take a little shortcut. And look at how crafty Satan is. In the past two temptations, how has Jesus responded to Satan? You remember what he said? It is written. He responds with verses out of the Old Testament. If you want to know where, it's out of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 8. He says, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. It's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you, shall you serve. And so Satan thinks, okay, this guy really likes his Bible. Maybe I can use this to my advantage. So he takes some verses out of the Old Testament and uses them out of context to tempt Jesus. So he takes a gamble. Maybe this will work. But of course it's Jesus, so it does not work. Jesus knows that Satan is taking these verses out of context. He's twisting scripture. The whole angels will guard you thing, it's found in Psalm 91. That Psalm literally says, if you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. That sounds like awesome stuff, doesn't it? But the very next verse says this. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. 
I will protect him for or because he acknowledges my name. And so God does say, and he does promise to protect and care for his followers, but there's a condition. He will protect those that love him. He'll protect those that are devoted to him, that acknowledge his name. And what that phrase means is that they submit themselves to his principles. In Christian circles, we would say it's someone who acknowledges his lordship in their lives. They acknowledge his authority in their lives and submit themselves to him. That's the type of people that God protects, not people that just jump off a building for no reason. And you can tell this by the way that Jesus responds. In verse 12, he says this. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. See, Jesus sees this temptation for what it is. Satan is trying to get Jesus to put God to the test. Now, I have to be honest. I went to seminary and all that sort of stuff. But before this sermon series, I did not know what it meant to test God. Uh, I, I didn't know what it meant to test God. I, I've, I've seen it in the Bible a few times, but I've never studied it before. Now, I'd heard the word test growing up. If you grew up in the South, you heard your dad or your papa, what we call grandparents, say, don't test me, boy. Like, you heard that growing up. You sit in his recliner during Thanksgiving, and he'd say, don't test me, boy. Get out of that chair. Or we have, we have similar sayings, testing the waters. Children will test boundaries. And what I learned in studying what this means, there's actually two aspects to testing God. The first aspect is this, and it's an obvious one. Expecting God to bless disobedience. And that's clearly what we see going on in this. Expecting God to bless disobedience. You see, God has given Jesus a set of boundaries of things he can and can't do during his earthly ministry. And you see Jesus saying this all the time. I have to do the will of my Father. When he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. He submits himself to the Father's will. And God clearly hadn't willed that Jesus throw himself off the temple wall. That would have been disobedient. But Jesus could have tested God in that. He could have thought, you know what? God said he loves me a whole lot. He said that in my baptism. And you know what? He is not a human like I am. He doesn't understand this whole incarnation thing. He doesn't know what I'm going through. And a little bit of applause, a little bit of admiration from the people down there, that would be nice. And I'm pretty sure I'm kind of instrumental in this whole plan of redemption. So I don't think he'll let me go splat on the pavement there. So maybe I can just test him just this once. He could have done that. He could have tried to get God to bless his disobedience. But he didn't. Unlike us. We do this all the time, don't we? Like we know it says in God's word, do not be unequally yoked. And what that really means is don't date or marry people that aren't Christ followers themselves. If you're a Christ follower, not as a judgment against them, but you put two oxes together in the same yoke and one's pointed that way and one's pointed that way, they're not gonna get any work done. They're not gonna go anywhere. When your foundational beliefs and worldview is different, that doesn't make for a good start to a marriage. But we test God all the time in this, don't we? We test God by diving into relationships or a marriage that doesn't have the approval of God's word. We test God by asking for God to bestow health without following the rules of health. So we leave Bojangles for the third time that day and on the way home, we're like, God, can my cholesterol test just come back positive? Really pray that that goes down this year. Or we ask that God would, would save or transform our kids and we neglect the means by which God can do that, which is the church. Or we ask God to give us answers, but we never open our Bibles. Or we ask God to keep us from sin. And then we go home and open up the computer or turn on Netflix and just put trash into our eyes and to our brains. Mike puts it like this. Don't expect the blessing of God 
if you disobey the principles of God. We can't claim God's promises in the midst of disobedience. That would be testing God. And if you think about it, that's a crazy way to think if you are a Christ follower. That's basically saying, God, I know better than you how to live my life. Your commands, they're a little out of touch. If you knew what I knew, or if you knew what I was going through, you would not command me to do that. And sometimes we go even further and basically say, I'm going to do what I want, and I expect you to bless me regardless. And we put his love to the test. Isn't that crazy? That's treating him as if he has to submit to our demands. But Jesus won't do that. It would be wrong for Jesus to expect God to save him in this instance. And you know what's interesting as I was thinking about this passage? When I find myself wanting to test God, wanting to disobey and still get his blessings, you know what I get really good at? Twisting scripture. Taking scripture out of context, just like Satan does here. We'll say like Satan in the garden to Eve, did God really say that? I know it's in black and white in the Bible, but do you really think he meant it that way? What's the original Hebrew or Greek word mean? I mean, didn't he, humans write this thing? Surely that must be a mistake. And when you start down that road of taking scripture out of context or removing portions of scripture, trying to justify our disobedience so that we can still claim God's blessing, that's testing God and it doesn't end well. That's the first way we're tempted to test God. Let me just say, before we move on, I've done that. I still am tempted to do that. You know my story. I don't have a squeaky clean past. I've done most of the drugs out there. And when I did them, guess what? I was a Christian. And I knew there would be consequences, but I just assumed maybe I would be the first one in history to not experience those. I just assumed that God would bless me in the midst of that. Now, he was gracious, and he sent me some amazing people to get me out of that lifestyle and to keep me out of that life, but I still felt the brunt of those bad decisions. And let me just tell you, that is not a path that you want to walk down. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Every single one of God's commands, he doesn't give them to steal our joy, but to give us joy so that we can be in a position to experience the most joy and satisfaction possible. And the closer you stick to this, the happier you will be. I'm living proof of that. No matter what your work friends or your online friends say, you don't want to go down that road. So don't expect the blessings of God if you disobey the principles of God. Don't test God that way. That's the first aspect. But there's a second aspect that I figured out when I started studying this, and it's a little bit more complicated, but man, it just really convicted me the past few weeks. You see, when Jesus replies to Satan, he replies out of a verse in Deuteronomy. And if you don't know, Deuteronomy is a, a book that's basically Moses' farewell address to the Israelites before they enter into the promised land. And the, the, the verse is Deuteronomy 6.16, do not put the Lord your God to the test. The rest of that verse says, as you did at Massa. So Jesus is saying, no, Satan, I'm not going to do what the Israelites did at Massa. Well, we got to understand what happened at Massa so we don't do it on our own lives. So it's a short little story, but it's really profound. It's in Exodus chapter 17. If you can turn there, that's awesome. We'll have it on the screens if not. But this is, this is how the story at Massa goes. This is after they've been released. Israel's been released from their captivity in Egypt. They've gone through the Red Sea. Um, they've been walking around the desert for a little while. They've experienced the manna. So they're eating that, that bread from heaven, but that's about as far as they are right now. So it says the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. 
So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Now, this is a really interesting passage. And I've read it dozens of times before this sermon, and I never really understood what was going on. I thought, you know, this is just the Israelites complaining again like they do a million times in the book of Exodus. And Moses has to go to God and intercede on their behalf and negotiate for them until God gives them some water. But as I was reading it and consulting commentaries, I figured out there's, there's more going on here. You know what's really going on here? Dun, 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 dun. Dun 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 dum bum 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 ba ba. You know what that song is? Law and Order. Anyone? That was close, right? Law and Order. It's a court case. That's what's starting. I used to be a worship leader here. Do you believe that? They were desperate back then. All right, but that's what's going on. This is a court case that is starting. See the word quarrel that we see uh, two times in the Hebrew here. It's literally the Hebrew word terabim, and it means to bring a legal complaint to begin a court case. And so the leaders of Israel are literally suing Moses. And it's a big deal. They've charged him with some form of a crime where the punishment is death. Moses says, they're going to stone me. And so what we see playing out here is a court case. The Israelites are saying to Moses, Moses, you led all of us and our children and our livestock, the only belongings that we have, all the way out into the middle of a desert where there's no water. And you did this knowingly. Our whole nation is going to be dead in a matter of days. So at the bare minimum, Moses, this is negligence. But we think this is more like treason. This is genocide. And since we're all going to die, we think you deserve to go first. But notice, notice what Moses says in verse 2. He says, why do you quarrel with me? And then he says, why do you put the Lord to the test? So Moses sees what's really going on. The Israelites have surveyed their situation. They're walking around in a stinking desert. They don't know where they're going. They don't see any rivers or springs at night. They're facing a very unknown future, and they're mad at Moses, but even more so, they're mad at God. Moses is just a figurehead. In reality, they've decided to put God on trial. That's the second aspect of test. They brought charges against God. They put God in the defense stand and are testing him. They're trying to decide if he's innocent or guilty. They're saying, in effect, you say that you are a good God and that you will be with us, but we have evidence that says otherwise. So what do you have to say for yourself? That's what's really going on. And Moses knows it, and God knows it as well. Look at verse 5. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of all the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Now, the only reason you get the elders of the nation together is for something really important, usually a court case. This is like the Supreme Court of Israel. And then he tells Moses to bring your rod, bring your staff. That's not a good thing. When Moses uses that rod, puppies don't normally fall down from the sky, okay? This is not a rod that causes dolphins and rainbows to appear miraculous, okay? This is a rod of judgment. Through that staff, God judged the Egyptians with the plagues. He killed Pharaoh and Pharaoh's armies as he sent that water crashing down on them. So God knows they're going to put him on trial and they're testing him. So he says, you want a trial? Let's have a trial. 
let's have a public trial. And we'll get a defense stand, we'll get a judge and a jury, we'll do it in front of all the Israelites, and I'll even bring the form of execution since it's a capital offense. And we'll see what happens in a moment. But have you ever been in a place where you put God on trial? Where you tested God like this? When you were facing an unknown future and you didn't like your current circumstances and instead of trusting God, you tested him? You thought things like, you said you love me. Why is this happening? I thought you were a good God. So how do you explain this, this piece of evidence? And really it's not questioning, it's accusations. You ever been there? No, just me? <laughs> I have. I've been there. I did that um, clearly probably many more times, one time in my life. And it wasn't during a season that you would think. It wasn't during the time when our adoption failed, three-year adoption from Ethiopia. It fell through after three years and thousands of dollars. It wasn't during a, a pretty intense season of arguing and fighting and drama with some extended family. Um, it was actually six months after we successfully launched the church in Asheville. And I'll tell you why. See, I had high expectations for what God would do through us. Uh, in Asheville, if you've been there, you might have noticed it's probably a hard place to start a church. It is, uh, especially downtown, which is where we were. It used to be uh, the Wicca capital of the U.S., so witchcraft capital. Um, and you can actually go out and see pagan monuments and stuff in the woods all around the city where they do spells and they do rituals. And uh, there's actually a movement to stop the spread of the gospel. Um, a lot of churches go there and a lot of churches fail. So, th but this is where me and my family and our team felt called. And I just have some kind of foundational beliefs that I have built my life on. Uh, one of them is that people desperately need to hear about the love that God has for them. That there's eternal consequences if they don't. Uh, secondly, I believe that this isn't just a book. It's living and it's active. And when you teach it, lives transform. And I also believe that if you lift Jesus up, he's going to draw men and women to himself. And these aren't made-up beliefs. These are some of the core truths that you find in God's word. Well, we spent six months holding services and doing in-home Bible studies where we taught the Bible and we lifted up Jesus. And in six months' time, we had gathered a crowd, but no salvations, not a single baptism. And I went through this season where I just, I started doubting some of those deep beliefs where I thought, I'm doing what you've called me to do, but I don't see the fruit. So is the Bible right about this? Am I missing something? Why would you call me to move my family to this place and then do the hard work of starting a church and then not bless that? And there were many nights where I would lay in bed awake and honestly put God on trial. And I'd put him in the defense stand and I'd act like judge and jury and I'd say basically, I thought you were good, I thought you were faithful, I thought this was true but I think I have evidence that says otherwise. So what do you have to say for yourself? And I'm not proud of that, but it happened. Now in hindsight, that was a really prideful and immature place to be. You think God was working in our church? Of course he was. Just goes a little bit slower up there. I remember the weekend after Easter, it was about two or three months after I went through that, that season of doubt, we had our first salvation, and it was amazing. She was a nursing student named Divya. She was from India. She was born and raised Hindu. 
And it was amazing just to see, oh yeah, for six or seven months, you've been working in her life through her small group, uh, through some sermons that I was preaching in the midst of doubting. She remembered and God used. And uh, she came to know Christ. We were able to baptize her. Her small group got to go to her house and help her remove idols, literal idols from her house. And God was working there in a tons of different other ways. But just below the surface, I, I just couldn't see it. And what I was reminded of when studying for this what I forgot and what the Israelites forget and what we need to realize when we get into these seasons where we're tempted to test God to put him on the defense stand is that he's already proven his goodness. The evidence is stacked in his favor. He's already shown that he is good beyond a shadow of a doubt and not only good, but way better than we could ever imagine, way better than we could ever deserve. See, at the end of this story in Exodus, we get a beautiful picture of just how good he is. Moses gathers the elders and he brings his staff, his rod, and they meet together in the desert in front of all the Israelites. And I'm sure the elders are a little afraid. Maybe by this point they realize, okay, we're not really in a position to put God in the defense stand. Maybe we don't have the right to act as judge and jury. In reality, God is the judge. He's the one that deserves to ask questions. He's the one that's in a position to demand a defense from them. He could have left them as slaves in Egypt. He didn't have to free them miraculously. He didn't have to reveal himself to them or rain down food from heaven. They don't deserve any of that. In fact, what they really deserve for their pride and their testing is punishment. And maybe they understood that as they, as they walked with Moses into the desert, looking at that rod, that staff, and thinking, uh-oh, maybe today's the day that we get what we deserve. But they don't. They don't get what they deserve. They get something different. Look at verse 6. God says, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Did you catch that? They walked out in the desert and God kind of set up like a scaffold, like an electric chair, like an execution chamber on this platform called the Rock of Horeb. But instead of telling the elders to get up on that platform, which they deserved, which would have been just, which would have been fair, instead, who gets on that platform? Not Moses. Not the elders. God does. And this is one of the only places when we see God standing in the midst of, that, of the people. Imagine that sight, God himself in all of his splendor and his power and his majesty standing before you. And then he looks at Moses and says, strike me with that staff, that rod of judgment. Hit me. And Moses does, and the rock starts pouring out water, pure water so that they could drink. Instead of death, what do they get? They get life. See, God's showing them and us that he's not just a good God, but that he is way better than we could have ever imagined. He takes the punishment that they deserve and through that gives them what they don't deserve, which is life. And when I think back to that season where I was testing God, where I was laying in bed at night and saying, I moved up here. I got a group of people to move with me. We raised the money. We launched the church. I've done all of this. What are you doing? Why haven't you done anything? I think back to that time and Jesus could have easily replied, what have I done? 
You mean dying on the cross to capture for myself that church, that bride? I spilled my blood for that church. I gave up my life so that I could forgive and transform the people in that city that I love eternally more than you ever could. And I'm working in a thousand different ways right now that you could never understand. But he didn't say that. Instead, he said, I'm not going to hold that pride and that sin, which is what testing God is against you. He said, in fact, I'm going to forgive it because of the cross, and I'm going to go even further. I'm still going to use you. And I'm still gonna bless you because I'm not just good, I'm far better than you could ever deserve or imagine. You think God was foreshadowing something with that rock? Yeah, it's Jesus. Don't take it from me, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. See, there's no need to ever test God. He always has been, and he always will be, not only good, but way better than we could ever deserve. He's got no business being tested, being put in the defense stand. He is the God that gave up his only son so that whoever believes in him could have eternal life. And if that's the kind of God that he really is, then there's nothing left for us to do but what? To trust and to obey. If he is good, then his commands are good. We should obey him. And if he is good, then we know he's always faithful and he's present and he's working in our good. And we can know that because of Christ. And I learned that lesson. Now this has been a crazy week. The Saturday before last, I did a funeral and it was a hard funeral. It was for my cousin, Jessica. Uh, she was 39 when she passed away. She left behind a four-year-old girl named Ava. And I had to do that funeral. <laughs> that was hard. And even this week, Monday and Tuesday, people that I deeply love went through a crisis. And it would be so easy to just compile the data, compile the evidence, and put God in the defense stand. But I think maybe it's because I'm from the outside looking in. Even as fresh as that is, I can even see in conversations after the funeral and a conversation I had just this afternoon, just light in the midst of the darkness. Where God's not only good, he's not only gonna use that for these people's good and for his glory, he's better than I could ever ask or imagine or deserve. I love how Corey Tim Boom puts it, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God, and we know God, so we don't need to test him. Don't expect him to bless disobedience. His commands are good. Follow those, and don't put him in the defense stand. He doesn't belong there. We do. We do, and we would be found guilty, but instead Jesus took our place so that we could be declared innocent. Well, Jesus was successful um, in resist, resisting this temptation just like the first few. But that doesn't mean that he wouldn't face temptations again. In Luke 4.13, it says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time, and he finds many. Satan comes to tempt Jesus multiple times, and the devil uses these same temptations, these same three temptations to not depend, to not be devoted to, to not trust God come up again and again in Jesus' ministry. But 
where Adam and Eve failed in the garden and brought death, and we're experiencing that, Jesus succeeds in the desert, and he brought life. Jesus emerges victorious despite all the plans of hell to overthrow the plans of redemption. And hear this, his victory is our victory. The devil's in checkmate, all right? He can make a few more moves for now, but he can't alter the fact that victory has already been accomplished in the cross. We can resist him just like Jesus did. And the Bible says he'll flee from us. You can be victorious in any and every temptation. That's the good news. Now, can you imagine what God could do um, in us and through us if we begin looking at obstacles and trials and temptations not as things to be avoided, but things to be embraced, things that can grow us and change us? Can you imagine what God could do with a few thousand Christ followers that are okay with weakness, <laughs> that embrace that and depend on the power of God, that fully devote themselves to him, uh, where, where Jesus has captured their affections and that trust and obey him in every area of their lives. That would be a sight to behold. And here at Hope, I think we've seen what God can do through people like that. I, I can point to people in this room that exhibit those characteristics. And it's an honor to be a part of a church that takes this stuff to heart, that really wants to know God and chase after him and his plans. And I believe that these first 25 years are, are just the beginning. As we depend and we stay devoted to and we trust and obey, I really do think we can reach the triangle and we can change the world. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you gave it to us in love and that we can trust it. Um, <laughs> this whole series, I kept thinking to myself, I bit off a little more than I can chew. There's, there's so much to your temptation. But thank you for the lessons that we did learn. I pray that you'll take whatever words I say and, uh, and use them uh, to help and encourage. But Father, I pray tonight for those of us that are, are testing, are getting as close to sin as we possibly can, for those of us that are just in outright disobedience and we're still claiming your blessing, would you draw us back? Would you give us a distaste for those things? Would you allow us to see where that road really leads? And for those of us that have you in the defense chair, we got all of our evidence compiled against you, would you just, <laughs> would you just allow us to see who you really are? And when we see that and your goodness and your love and your mercy and your grace and your wisdom, the only thing that we could respond is just surrender, complete and total surrender to you. So would you give us that today, a sight of you and would our lives change? It's in Christ's name we pray.